Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. I'm excited about the guest today because we're going to learn a thing or two about building and scaling and also exiting a business. So without further ado, Peter Rahal, welcome on board today. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for so having me. Du during your high school years, Peter, you were diagnosed with uh, dyslexia, I believe. I hear this, uh, this also helped you with pattern recognition and deductive reasoning. Tell us about this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so is it even before high school, um, I guess once um, literacy became into the picture, so like grade school, I was diagnosed with it. Um, in context, diagnosis is it's more just like the way I process information and um, the way my brain's wired. Um, so, but I de definitely um, so I struggled through school, and then uh, the best there's like a, a ton of like unintended benefits of it. So like one is tremendous self-awareness and then two, the actual like cognitive benefit of the way that like dyslexics process information. So, um, there we're, we're terrible at like, uh, procedural or like sequential tasks. So, um, linear thinking dyslexics are terrible at, but the, the thing we're really good at is typically like holistic thinking or pattern recognition, uh, so interconnected like relationships, cause and effect, um, which is really great for solving problems and, and strategy in general. Got it. Got it. So, so I guess, uh, I guess, I mean, for you and, you know, it's interesting because in many, in many, many cases, there is some of the most successful entrepreneurs had, had circumstances like this. So, so in your case, talking now about entrepreneurship, like when did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Uh, I, I, I've always been pretty entrepreneurial like, or, or into commerce. So I grew up in a family. I think it's kind of cultural. Like in my family, we don't even use the word entrepreneurs. Just, we just are all in business and kind of find ourselves uh, being entrepreneurs on both sides of my family. So I, I grew up in a world where like, you know, our, our family and business were so commingled. It was just kind of like works part of our family and et cetera. So and I always grew up just creating things, um, building things and, 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 and selling them. So, uh, I, I've always really been surrounded by that as, as an influence. And then, you know, 
I wanted to get a job out of school and I, I went down those paths of getting simple entry level jobs. And then I didn't, it did not align with my strengths. And so then I, I've tried starting a couple other ventures prior to RX bar. Um, Got it. And that yeah. was the, uh, the donut and coffee shop and, and then other stuff as well, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. And, and your family, I mean, you were talking about your family, your family also, uh, had their own business, a food business, and and originally you guys are from Lebanon. So why didn't you join them? Uh, yeah, they, so they have a, a brokerage trading company or a distribution company uh, for industrial juice concentrate. Uh, it's a great business. Um, I I think it was timing. Um, you know, my credentials weren't good. Um, and you know, in family business, there's there's politics at times. So. Um, just the timing didn't work. And so I'm, I'm so grateful for, for that, to be honest. I mean, it forced me to start another job, you know, start a company essentially. Of course. Well, I'm sure that the credentials are different now, but, <laughs> but anyhow, the, uh, you, before, before you actually started your own thing, you, you did some marketing for Monday foods over, over a year or so. So what, what exactly were you doing there? Was it just marketing? Or? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a role with a lot of utilities. So like I, I, really supported the sales, the sales of different regions, but really fo- trying to focus on um, the different products we had. So concentrated purees, single strength purees, juice concentrate, and then what are the different applications for those? So like, where are there, where there's, where is there demand for those products that we aren't seeing and, 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 and under what con- regions or in companies? So for example, like in baking, they use a lot of fruit preparation what other baking companies, how can we introduce the, our products to them? So kind of doing, um, I, so that's like marketing on a B2B side. Got it, got it. So at what point do you start to kind of like incubate the idea of, of RX Bar? Well, I, well, it actually kind of started in Belgium. So in the Belgian market, and I think the broader market in Europe, and where I was working in Monty Foods, there, there, there was no like protein bar or like nutrition bars didn't really exist. And you can understand, cause you know, in Belgium, it's hard to compete with a, uh, a baguette, you know what I mean? So um, the market didn't really exist. And so I remember just experimenting in my kitchen, kitchen with, you know, like different like protein balls or protein bars, just making them because um, it didn't exist in that market. Um, so that, that's when it started. And I always, I've always loved um, and found great value in, in, in bars, the form like of food, because it's super portable and requires no preparation really. Um, and when you think about that, like that saves you time. So like, for example, you just go in the morning, you can grab it and you're good. Um, and eating it's fast. It doesn't, it just saves you time, uh, and it's nutritious. And so there's a lot of utility in bars, um, and so I always was attracted to it. And then, I, so my first real like experimentation with making bars was in Belgium because uh, it didn't exist. Got it. So, so then at what point were you like this, maybe it makes sense to build something around this. So I came back to the United States um, and two, two stimuluses. One, I, I didn't have a good job and I wanted to like make, I wanted to have a, be a part of a great company, um, and have it be a part of a great organization. So I always, always wanted that, like a good career. 
that's one. I didn't have that. And then two, um, I've always been into nutrition um, as well and just health and wellness and um, started experimenting different nutrition trends and, you know, understanding when nutrition culture in the United States and um, being a part of it. And then re- quickly le- realized like, all right, there isn't a bar that is of whole real foods. There isn't like a clean label protein bar. Most of them are all covered in either some, you know, chocolate compound or use some cheap filler protein or some bullshit binding system. And so despite the fact that the market's really competitive broadly, and there's a lot of, a lot of different bars coming and going, I, I connected the dots and saw like a pretty big hole in the market. Uh, and it was a product, it was a hole and product that I, I was looking for uh, as a consumer. And so then um, I just began experimenting with this idea of like a, a fruit nut uh, protein bar, essentially. So um, date-based, uh, simple ingredients. For the, the, the position you see today is RX. Um, just started doing it on the weekends in my kitchen, et cetera. Got it. Got it. Really cool. And, 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 you, and, and at what point would you say that Jared, your co-founder, at what point he comes into the picture? So he comes in. So again, context, like I know exactly what I'm good at and, and I know more, I know more about what I'm bad at. And, and I always knew I needed someone to help me and like, I need a good, like yin to my yang, so to speak. And so Jared's a childhood friend, best friend. He's a brother at this point. Um, and he has very different skills than me and very, like we're very, very much the opposites. And the most important thing is like, I trust him with my life completely. Um, and so I knew I had this idea. I knew I, I needed someone to do this with, like, I cannot do the detailed work. I cannot, I just really struggle with it. Um, and I know I needed someone to like balance me out. And so after my two previous experiences trying to start something with other partners, I, I learned a ton about like, what kind of partner fits best with me. Um, and Jared was like, a, like the perfect fit for this. Um, so I, I, I tip Jared and I got connected really early on. Um, I, it was basically like August, 2012 for some context on time. And then November, 2013, we launched, like formalized the company. And then we launched the product March, 2013. Got it. And you launched this from your parents' basement. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Um, developed it in their kitchen and in my kitchen in Chicago, a little apartment, and then commercialized it in their basement and operated it there. I have to ask you something. You, is, is it right that you fired your mother because she couldn't put the label straight? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the label, we, so we, we buy pouches from China. And then we would go to PowerPoint for our labels and design them there. And then we went to uh, like staples to get them printed. And they're on these like terrible, like, you know, stickers. And it was a really hard job. And then I just, the products, everything. And I just did not want the labels not on right. And my mom couldn't cut it. Got it. Got it. So, and, and you had even your, your cell phone number printed on the, on the back of, on, on the packaging is, is this, is this right? Yeah. So 
kind of proud about this just in general, like customers, customer feedback, service in general. Like if someone wants to order some products, someone has a problem with their products, someone wants to have a question about our almonds, whatever it is, as a company, we have to be available and like frictionless to get that friction, frictionless experience between the customer and us. And so early on, like we were like, well, what do we do? Just put an email. And for me, it was like, it was, it was not even a decision. It was like, yeah, we're putting it of my cell phone on the package, the website, LinkedIn, everywhere, Facebook. And so we ran the whole business through my cell phone, essentially, um, and up for like for about two years. And the great thing about that in reflection is that's where all the insight came primarily from, from much of the decisions we've made in our business. Um, because people would call and there's gold in their information they're giving you. So what did, for example, the selling door-to-door -door teach you? Uh, well, just, I think staying close to customers and like the end users of your product, like, you know, we, and then learning how to position and pitch the product. Um, Cause you, when you're selling and, and talking to customers, you're, you're, you're experimenting with like messaging ultimately and the communication of why your brand business product should even exist. And so you, you do that. It's one, it's high quality data. And then two, if you do it at some scale, which is like a lot of interactions, you will find a pattern between all that and that you'll find great insight. Um, and that insight is what we used to position the brand, the product, um, and adapt. I mean, when you're small, the only competitive advantage small companies have is agility. Um, the ability to move fast, the ability to make decisions quickly uh, and stay close to the fundamentals of the business. So for us, it was everything. I mean, we definitely had our pulse on our customers, the product and everything about the business. Got it. And you had the um, marketing background, so I'm sure that was that was helpful. So did you have any kind of like marketing hacks to get some early traction? Uh, I, well, I, I would say I don't have a conventional or traditional marketing background. Um, which I honestly think is a huge advantage because I approach things with like a beginner's mindset and, you know, like not through some like overly engineered framework or conventional process. So I just learned on the go. Um, but it was really helpful. Um, the, the, to be honest, the more beneficial thing about my experience was understanding supply chain, manufacturing, the raw material side of the business. Cause <clears throat> when you're making food and scaling that, Part of the business is really, really hard. Um, you know, you got to make product. You got to make sure your supply is there, willing to support demand. And the thing is, like, demand is the hard part to predict or forecast. Um, but when it's there, the supply side can be very, very. It's over a lot of businesses derail. Got it. Got it. And and when you thought about raising capital, because obviously you guys were ramping up the sales. You know, the operation was. Was scaling. So when you thought about raising capital to really support this growth, what made you push back and, and continue focusing on ramping up sales? Well, early on, the like I think in this startup entrepreneurial culture in the United States, there's this like misconception that like you need investors for everything. Um, and so like the status quo is like, okay, you have an idea, you're gonna get investors. And I kind of felt me and Jared both fell in that like early on. <clears throat> I, I call it like the shark take influence. Um, and I remember going to my dad, 
you know, we're, we had the idea, we we're working on it. And like my, my thinking was, oh, I need a designer. Like I need packaging. So I need a designer. I need a manufacturer. So I need a co-man. I need, I need all the, I need, you know, I need all these things. And therefore I need to raise money to go get those things and like orchestrate the business. And my old man was like, you need to, you need to shut the fuck up and sell a thousand bars. And, <laughs> and the point, like, that's like rough language, but like, I needed to hear it. Jared and I needed to hear it because what it was, it was just simply, he, he was basically saying like, you need to prioritize and mitigate your risk. You need to not just you need to do what's important and not chase something that you think is going to solve your problems. Like money doesn't solve your problems and you can mitigate your risk. Like don't take it on people's money. Just make a th- 10 bars, a thousand bars, and then go, go sell it and take that profit and go invest it. And it's like a normal, like a normal business. Like, <laughs> and you know, all great things start, start small. So, and I think most entrepreneurs want, you know, something big right away and et cetera. So, um, so we took that, that my dad was really influential in our approach towards raising capital. Um, and he was honestly like helped finance most of the company early on, um, with personal guaranteed lines of credit. Um, and you know, our business strategy helped finance the company. I mean, we, we sold direct to consumer. So, I mean, we got paid, we got paid before we even shipped. Um, and we manufactured the product. So we controlled inventory. So we never had too much cash tied up in our inventory. We were more able to keep days on hand pretty low. So, um, we were able to really just design a business that was more human capital intensive than capital intensive. Got it. So how, how did revenue scale over time before the, the acquisition happened? So we first year was 2 million, basically second year was, uh, 6.5. Then third year was a 30, uh, 31, uh, well, that's net. So 36 gross. And then, uh, the fourth year was 161 gross. And that's the year we sold the end of the year Q4. Got it. So what, what made you guys go, let's say from like six to 30 something up to 37. I mean, it's a, it, it seems that something happened right there. Okay. So, well, again, self-awareness and humility, um, Jared and I like designed the front of pack of our brand to start because we didn't want to pay for our designers and we wanted to mitigate our risk. And we were just, we knew the brand and the product did not, and the position didn't like, it was time to invest in it. And we knew that it didn't reflect what we were about. Um, and so we need, we knew we needed to like reposition, rebrand, uh, our X bar. And so, started interviewing designers and knew the brand wasn't ready for retail. Um, and some other insight we learned too. And then we rebranded the product and we wanted to focus. It was really a contrarian approach. We knew we had to be different. It was a super competitive market that we were getting into. Um, and we knew why customers liked the product. Um, we had that insight from being close to customers. And so I hired uh, Scott and Victor went through the process. And yeah, we rebranded in that. And then once we rebranded, that's when we triggered, we were, we were ready for retail. So we started getting to retail and then there there's heaps of demand in the market. Um, and the great thing about food is there's like a really existing 
retail infrastructure that's, that that takes place. Like there's all these grocery stores, there's distribution uh, distributors set up. So we were able to plug in and really scale the business from being an e- e-commerce niche market to a natural in the natural foods and broader uh, broader market. Got it. Got it. So so you were talking about scaling the the revenues earlier. So I wanted to ask you as well as a follow up here. How did you scale as well the team? Um, so I would say like the first year in the company is like your survival. You got to like get your identity figured out. What kind of business, what business are you in? And then after that, you're in the people business. Um, hundred percent. Any company is just a group of humans that work in teams that solve problems. And so, you know, culture becomes really important and we define culture as like how you work and, and how you live, um, as a group of people. And people are, are like everything. And so um, I, we hired, um, actually, it's funny. We, so Jared and I went to high school together. And then we hired uh, Sam McBride and Jesse Stewart. We both went to high school with us. Um, a couple other people, too, um, early on. And that was like our, our early team. And then um, grew the organization to from like, like five people, 12 people. And like that five to 12 is a huge change. Um, Cause it's a really flat organization all of a sudden like needing, like figure out how you guys, how, how are meetings and like functions and like job titles, descriptions all really, really matter. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we, we, we scaled the company people wise really, really well. Um, in our third year, we were up to like, 50 people. And then when we sold, we sold at around 85 to a hundred people. Um, and today we're about 205 people. Got it. And, and talking about the, um, the acquisition, were you, were you always planning to sell the business since you got started? Uh, no, that, that outcome is never on mind. Like, uh, Jared and I, we never like designed it for sale. We wanted to focus on building the great, the best company possible. Um, we wanted to focus on like, building, you know, the best company, best products, the best culture, et cetera. Um, but to be honest, the back, once we, once we knew we were like, we're surviving after our first year, we're like, okay, you know, we're doing good. And it was just Jared and I, like we're, you know, there's no, no one really in the company. And we were, we started in the back of our mind and realized like, okay, we built something valuable. We could sell this. Um, but however, we never like talked about it too much because we felt as a distraction, like there's too much work ahead. Um, and reality is if someone wants to buy your company, they're going to, you know, anyone who buys a company, they want to buy a great business. Um, yeah. so if you focus on building a great business and a great product, you, you'll get a good outcome. So there'll be a market for it. And you were talking about survival. So, uh, was there a point where you knew we're going to survive? Um, yeah, I mean, we, there's in the early days, there's definitely like multiple times of near death. Um, but I think it's pretty normal, but to be honest, like as an entrepreneur, like I was once the first like week we sold product, it was like, I knew it was going to work. I could just, I could just, I was fully convicted that this was going to work. It was just a matter of time and then making the right decisions. So I never really had any, I don't know if the question was that having doubt, but like I, I, there's some dark days, but I was always six. It was going to be a successful business no matter what. 
Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so tell us about the um, the acquisition. How how did how did the acquisition or or thinking that that was a possibility happen? So, uh, Jerry and I were sitting around. We kind of did like informal board meetings quarterly, um, and so I we were sitting around. And it was like it's two thousand seventeen of Q one, and we we're like, "What are you thinking?" We talk about the future. Um, we want to get on the same page in terms of like vision on from a shareholder perspective. And uh, we just realized like, all right, well, let's see what, let's see what this could be like if we were to go see if we could sell the company. Um, you know, and the, and the real like decision was like, do we want to keep this a private family company or do we want to like make this, you know, go join a greater company and, and, and roll up into the, into a, a public company. And we, we both decided like, we definitely don't want to like keep going and keep as a family business. And so we just went down the process of like, all right, let's go essentially like interview, get a sense of like, what are these strategic companies like these public companies and then go from there. So that was like our kind of thought process, um, as shareholders of the company, what we wanted to do. And then, so we, we hired a banker in March to, to kind of like, get us some meetings and test the waters. And once we test the waters, we realized like, oh my gosh, like, cause there's this misconception that, you know, big food is like evil or whatever. And they're actually like totally not, it's just false. Like they're, they're big companies, but they're not like their intentions to, to grow and to serve too. So, um, they're just very complex environments. Got it. Got it. The, uh, the next question here, you were speaking with uh, multiple suitors. So how did you manage the process so that, it did not become a distraction from the from, from really building the business. Well, I mean, I, it was a distraction for sure. I mean, it's a huge organizational commitment to go through a, a sale process. Um, However, with that being said, we have an amazing team, um, and we were fully transparent to the team. So, like, there was no secrets that we were selling the company. Um, I, I remember I announced it in front of the whole company, and, and like, as soon as we realized we we're going to move forward in all company uh, town hall, um, which is the best decision we made. So we aligned the whole company and like updated everyone to the process. With that being said, it was definitely like a big time and it took a lot of the organization's resources. So yeah, but I mean, I did think we managed pretty well. Got it. So how long did it take the, the M&A process from start to finish? I would say like March to Signing was uh, October 6th, and then closing of the deal was uh, end of November. And at what point were you guys like this? Well, sorry, this it was end of October. Sorry. End of October. Got it. So, and at what point were you guys like this? It makes sense to do it. Let's let's go ahead. It was after, as Jared and I did these, uh, they call them like fireside chats. Um, and basically, we want to understand like, what is the, what is the strategically, how do, does an acquirer think about this, like, what do they want? What's their vision? And it was if it was very different than ours, then that would be a different conversation. But we quickly realized, like, all right, Kellogg in particular is like very aligned with how we think about business and values and what's important. And so it was early on. It was like, all right, well, this is not this is this is a good this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing if we do this um, for the organization, for people, for shareholders, for everyone. So um, we move forward. Got it. And what were the uh, the terms of the acquisition, Peter? Uh, so, it was 
What do you mean terms? Like yeah, so it was the uh, the transaction value. Oh, it was six hundred million. Six hundred million. Got it. Got it. Got it. And and then for you, I mean, you've you've stayed uh, as part of the business. So so for you, obviously, continuing now uh, being under a, a bigger umbrella. How how have uh, things changed for you as the leader of the business? Uh, it's been good. So yeah, I stayed on as CEO. I actually just stepped down um, last last week. Um, last Friday. Um, so it's, it's been amazing. Uh, I think to be honest, the, the changes that happened for us were were more like the fact that the business got really big. I mean, we've, our revenue doubled and then our organization doubled. So we went from like a hundred people essentially to 220 people. And when you're, you know, leadership and operating a business, organizationally um, at those two different points are very, very different. Um, so it was a good stimulus. Um, but the, the, the changes that existed were really um, had to do with the size of the business we were managing. And, you know, the, the way our operating model works today with Kellogg is that we're, we're a standalone business. Uh, we, we plug in from an accounting perspective and um, some other like legal and, and quality oversights, which is, which make a lot of sense. So, so, it's been amazing from an operational perspective. So then, now that you've uh, stepped down, what's what's next for you? Um, well, I'm here still, still like support and serve the business, and and Jim Murray, our president now, um, just to support him as a leader and help help company. I mean, as a founder, I I will always have a relationship with the business. Yeah. Um, but for me, I'm a I'm a, like I'm an entrepreneur. I like to build and create things and um, build. I love business, and I want to. I, I need to go build another business essentially. And um, you know, my job here, here as the CEO is done, and it's just for me. I got to figure out some other problem I want to solve. Got it. So, so I guess this is a question that I always ask our guests. So especially as you're thinking about what's next for you and, and some of the lessons learned, no? if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, Peter? Oh, man. I mean, that's it's such a one piece of advice. So like prior to launching, correct. I would say like, I mean, there's so many like beautiful lessons I've learned. Um, but I think from a pure business standpoint, uh, I, I always say this and I think it's really important make sure you're solving the right problem and make like defining the right problem, like defining things is really important. So make sure you're like solving a right problem that exists or a frustration that exists and define, define it well and spend a lot of time doing that. I, I think just that from a strategic, like I want to start a company, like I think how you define the problem and how you think about it and make is really, really important. Got it. Got it. So, so Peter, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can just email me at peter at rxpar.com. Um, I'm always available. So fantastic. Well, Peter, it has been a pleasure to have you in the deal makers today. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.